So you like my name tag? You can't see it? Do I have to walk around row by row? She worked, she worked really hard to create this for me. Kind of ruined my whole joke if you can't see it. Superman. Oh. Well, don't act so surprised. Took me a year to earn this. Anyway, she was putting it together. I said, the S, what does the S stand for? Of course, I well know what it stands for. <clears throat> I grew up with Superman. And she said, servant. <laughs> okay, it's probably where I, I, I think I need to keep it there. Yeah, good. Do you like to wait? Are you good at waiting? Are you a patient person? I thought I would pause just long enough to see who really is patient and who's not. Like, come on, let's go. Start talking. I'm not, by nature, a patient person. I'm a pretty impatient, pretty, pretty restless person. That's not all bad, because it's possible, of course, to be a person who waits too long, you know, for things to happen, to get things done. But there is a time to wait, and there is a time... Um, there is a time to relax and a time to, to trust, time to reflect. And that time is in Acts chapter 1. You know, we're so eager to get to Acts chapter 2 because Acts chapter 2 is where all heaven breaks loose. You know, that's the day of Pentecost. Um, everybody loves Acts chapter 2. You know, the wind, the fire, the energy. Um, it's an exciting time. The crowds have gathered coming from all over the world to Jerusalem. It's the Passover feast, the Old Testament feast, a uh, time to renew relationships with God and, and one another, a time to remind all these Jews who have scattered all over the world and their and converts who are Gentiles to come and find out, to, re, to remind themselves what they believe in and uh, um, who they belong to and, and what their hope for the future is. Love Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 1, it seems to be kind of a, you know, a prologue at best, and maybe even kind of a waste of time, especially for those of us who are impatient. How many of you would admit to some level of impatience just in general because of your personality, your experience? Oh my gosh. Okay, okay. I thought there was nobody out there for a second. I'm preaching only to myself, which is worth it because it is all about me. Acts chapter 1, I want to read verses 1 through 8, because I think there is something very worthwhile going on here in Acts chapter 1, which prepares us for all the fireworks in Acts chapter 2. The mission begins in Acts chapter 2, but if you're not ready, if you're not prepared, then, um, then you're going to miss the moment. You're, 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 you, you haven't been in training for the Olympics, which I think are starting pretty soon here. So let's... Uh, Let's look at Acts chapter 1. First eight verses I want to read to start with. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Of course, this is Dr. Luke writing. You remember that? His first book was the Gospel of Luke. This is the sequel. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. 
After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Beautiful vision of what's coming, but for the moment... You have to wait. And waiting kind of grinds on me and maybe on, on some of you. But this is not waiting as in passively marking time. Not in the Bible. Waiting is very productive. It's very active. It's a kind of anticipation. I, I, I'm, I'm listening so I don't miss something. I'm listening to get ready. I'm listening because I believe in this future and I know that something is about to break here. And I want to be a part of it, not just a spectator. And I certainly don't want to fall asleep and miss it. So this waiting is an active listening, an active engagement, um, and a kind of building up of the person who is going to be that one who joins this grand momentum, which God is about to unleash, which is described in Acts chapter 2. So what do we need to be working on? What do we need to be paying attention to? Well, the first thing it says, as Jesus was with his disciples, and he's with them now post-resurrection, and he's with them for a period of a few weeks, up to 40 days, so it's not going to be a lot. So what he's telling them, obviously, is really crucial, getting them ready for what will then transpire in Acts chapter 2. They don't know anything about Acts chapter 2, by the way. They're not waiting for Acts chapter 2. They don't, they don't know any such thing. It hasn't been written yet. It hasn't happened yet. Um, they don't know anything. They're suspended in midair. They're living on pure faith right now. So the first thing they and we have to pay attention to is this little description, this little description of what Jesus is doing with them. He gave them many convincing proofs that he is alive. He appeared over a period of 40 days. Now, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul the Apostle is reflecting on this, and of course, he came late to this whole thing. He wasn't there for this. In fact, he was an enemy of this church that's about to be born. He was a persecutor. He was a co-conspirator in the killing and the arresting of Christians. So he wasn't part of this. But later on, he looks back on this. He talks about the appearance of Jesus to Peter. This is, Acts, this is 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to look at it at some point. Appearance to Peter, appearance to the 12, appearance to 500 followers, so there's more than we, than we know about. To James and others, he kind of, kind, of lets, kind of sets this out for us. Paul does later on, because this is a pivotal moment. This is absolutely crucial. Unless you believe that Jesus is alive, you can't do this. You can't do it in memory of him. You can't do it because there was a historical figure who gave you inspiration. Not when it comes to life and death issues. Not when it comes to pouring yourself into this mission. It can't just be reading history from a book. You have to be convinced we're talking about the living Christ at this moment. Now, 
Obviously, there are so many ways we could have this discussion. We could stop right here and talk about, well, is the resurrection a credible claim? How do you know? Well, historically, there's lots of issues to kind of unpack. The fact that the Romans really did know how to crucify people. People did not survive a crucifixion. The so-called swoon theory that Jesus survived and then you know, sort of recovered in the tomb and showed up and his disciples said, wow, he's alive again. And by the way, he wouldn't have been real impressive. He wouldn't have been much of a physical specimen at that point. They would have had to take care of him. He would have been convalescing for a long time. But even that's unlikely because the Romans knew how to kill people. They tortured you slowly until you were dead, and they make sure you're dead. They put a spear in your side and make sure the, the right fluids are coming out as a sign of death. Unfortunately, they were very good at it. Secondly, you have to think about the disciples themselves. They were completely demoralized by the event of the crucifixion. It all went south. It all went wrong. Peter had tried to stop Jesus from going to Jerusalem because he was fearing this very thing. All the disciples were. And it happened. And they had scattered. They scattered even before it happened. They scattered because there was a trial. They scattered because they were afraid they might get arrested. Something bad might happen to them. Only John was there with Mary and the other women, and John was there because he was taking care of Mary. I mean, they were devastated by the news of this crucifixion. And they knew well the Old Testament. Cursed is he who hangs on a cross. This can't be the Messiah. We thought he was, but he's dead. And he died this horrible death. Not only horrible, painful, but horrible, shameful death. The ultimate dishonor that Jesus volunteered to suffer because of his great love. But they couldn't figure that out at this point. They were done, and they were hiding out together. They regathered later to reminisce, and they basically had nothing to say to each other. It was about as depressing a scene as you could possibly imagine. There would have been no movement. There would have been no mission. There would have been no martyrdom. If they were not convinced, how do you explain this transformation of these poor, pathetic band of men and women unless they had an experience of the risen Christ? And then, of course, there's the empty tomb itself. His enemies would have gladly produced a body to stop the rumors about Jesus coming back from the dead. They knew exactly where he was buried. They posted a guard the religious leaders and the Roman soldiers, and there was a grand conspiracy to ensure that this dead man stayed dead and that nobody could pull a hoax and uh, you know, make up something that then would become some inspiration, some new religion. There was an empty tomb. How do you explain the empty tomb? His enemies could not produce a body because there was no body, because the body had been somehow by God raised again, now raised to immortality, a new body, but still Jesus. God is at work here, suddenly, mysteriously. You have to be convinced that Jesus is alive. And his disciples, it's, it's kind of interesting because he's standing there and he's presenting many convincing proofs that he's alive. Well, of course he is. He's standing there. But again, this is so surprising, so shocking. He has to prove over himself over and over again. And by the way, that's what God does. He's still doing it. He's still proving himself over and over and over again because our doubts rise, because someone sets up an alternative framework, because uh, questions are raised, and God 
humbles himself to prove himself again and again because he really does want this relationship with you and me. And he really does want this mission that's going to explain his love to the world to get out there. But that's the historical evidence. We could spend a long time doing that, and it's certainly worth reading about and discussing and studying and uh, you know, bringing all of your, your, your sort of critical thinking to. But there's a personal level for this as well. How do you personally know? Does it personally mean anything to you, or is it just a fact, a philosophical fact, a religious fact? Yes, the resurrection. Yes, he is risen. That's over there. That's for... You know, Sunday morning, this is, this is the real world. This is where I work every day. This is where I live. It has nothing to do with that. We kind of put a dividing line. We compartmentalize. That is exactly not the point of the New Testament. All of life is now reintegrated under this reality, under this good news that Jesus is alive. And um, have you trained yourself to look for evidence of God? God sightings, sometimes we call it here at GRX that God is alive and well, and that, of course, the supreme manifestation of that is the risen Christ, and the risen Christ with his power, and the risen Christ having given his spirit, and, and we see the effect of God in the world. Um, I'm training myself to do that. I see God at work in GRX. I was with three guys yesterday. I won't tell you who they are. I won't out them yet three GRX guys, and we're doing kind of a mentoring relationship. And uh, um, I can't explain what's happening in their lives individually or in our group discussion without bringing God into it. Because God has changed them. He has gotten them through some incredible stuff. And I'm part of this story too. Uh, they're not the only ones. It's, it's me too, but there's something about reflecting that to each other that reminds us of what is real here. And the openness of these guys. Can you imagine, ladies, that men are actually speaking from their hearts and telling the truth about their lives, including their failures, including their needs, including their weaknesses, along with their hopes and dreams and all those things that make us human. And they're open about that. Most of us find that very threatening, and we won't do that until God sort of covers our risk. And that's what's happening. And then we're actually kind of growing right in front of each other's eyes. And I think there's only one way to explain that, that God is at work here. Because these guys aren't saints. When I tell you their names, you're going to say, oh yeah, okay, wow, that is impressive. And that can be true of any of us when we go on this journey that God invites us to go on, because the only way we're going to make any progress is if he's alive. And as if he's sort of bringing this resurrection power that brings us back to life in, area, in places and in ways we've, we've kind of died and to be renewed in that way. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus is alive. When you're convinced of that, you know, everything else is kind of details. All, all the things that threaten you, all the enemies that you might think you have, all the worries, anxieties looking around at our world, um, if Jesus is alive, that trumps everything else. It doesn't mean you deny that. It means you now have the strength and the faith and the hope to live in the middle of that and to thrive in the middle of that and to bring hope to other people because Jesus is alive. Reflect on that for a moment. Many convincing proofs. That's where it starts. 40 days of appearances to all of these people. Not because he's 
trying to create a sensation, but because he has to instill this conviction in us that death does not get the final word, and that our failures, though they be many, are overcome by what God has done in Christ. The story, all the story, the beautiful gospel story is now real and true forever because he's alive. He's gone through death. He's experienced everything we've experienced, all the temptations, all the testing, all the way to death. And God has redeemed all of this. This is the picture, Christ, and now it becomes your death and resurrection. Now it becomes your destiny. And by faith in Him, you are given new life because He's alive. I could quit right now. Maybe somebody wishes I would because i got a few more points I want to make. But I could quit right now, and you could walk out of here saying, wow, if this is true, life now looks different. I'm not quite so afraid. I don't really have anything to prove, because it's not really about me. It's about Him and my relationship with Him and the life that He has given me. Secondly, You've got to be convinced that there is now a new agenda to go along with this new life, and it's called the kingdom of God. The disciples weren't quite there yet. These are slow learners, and I take great comfort from recognizing how slow they are because I am too. Maybe you are sometimes. So, yes, he's alive. Well, what's he about? The kingdom of God. The disciples are saying, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They had kind of a nationalistic picture of all this. They have a tribal view of this. You know, I'm very interested in the kingdom of me. How about you? The kingdom of you. Your agenda. What it is that you want. What it is that affects you. And the only thing that, 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 the only thing that bothers me about that is the kingdom of me, my kingdom, sometimes, sometimes competes with the kingdom of you. Have you noticed that? Because people walk around and they have their own sort of kingdom agenda. It's not God's kingdom. It's me versus you. It's us versus them. It's you know dividing. It's, it's, it's ultimately warfare. It's ultimately a collision of kingdoms that are not kingdoms at all. They're delusions. There is the kingdom of God. And ultimately, if we go to the very end in Revelation, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. There's the kingdom of God. There's... There's a new agenda. This agenda is um, a powerful new agenda. So if he's alive, now you're going to reset your agenda according to his values. And so instead of trying to be Superman, which I, man, I, I just couldn't make the impression this morning. I'm telling you to look at it. Everybody's going, what? I can't even see it. What a tiny little S. You must be a tiny little guy. You don't really have a lot to offer. What if it really does mean servant? That's sort of the kingdom of God title and a role that I should take on. Do I? If he's alive, I can afford to be a servant. I don't have to be, pretend that I'm Superman, which I'm not at all. And then thirdly, there is this strange force, this personality unleashed in the world to keep this To keep the life of Christ kind of, kind of getting out there and into every one of us. called the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit, the gift of God, is worth waiting for because He brings great 
power and guidance. We need guidance. It's kind of, okay, so there's, there's new life unleashed in the world, new life in Christ. There's a new agenda, a new value system. I take it in. Now, moment by moment, how do I appropriate this? How do I follow him? Well, there's a Holy Spirit. And when you put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit of Christ comes to live inside you and begins to guide you. Does that really happen? Sounds kind of mysterious. So my wife was not here today because she's in recovery from spending a week at camp in Oregon with a couple of hundred teenage moms and their babies. Can you imagine that might be a little exhausting? So my wife's coming. She really was. She's trying to get up this morning. I said, no, don't worry about it. Just, just stay put. You've had, you've had quite a week. And it wasn't just quite a week physically sleeping in rooms with moms and their babies. The babies slept a little bit. <laughs> the moms tried to sleep. And she's taking care of and ministering to and encouraging and hearing stories that broke her heart as these teens' moms shared about where they have come from and what their histories have been, histories of abuse and rejection and uncertainty and uh, the anger of their families and uh, um, not having the skills to take care of these little babies. Nancy, on the, on the bus, she's watching a mom feeding her, her six-month-old Doritos. Okay, moms are having, you've got to be horrified now just, just hearing that. I mean, this is not what little babies are supposed to be drinking. You know, putting Coke in the bottle and feeding it to your children. Because you're 15 years old and you don't know how to do this. And nobody's taught you how to do this. And nobody's mentored you. So Nancy and others are there. These, these, these teenage moms, by the way, every day at camp, they had eight hours of relief because each child had a nanny that was provided for them by the Young Life camp. It was Thursday morning, Nancy said, when she was sitting, she had a moment to herself, she was sitting by the pool there at this beautiful camp. These girls had never seen anything like this, you know, there in the, in the forested area of Oregon. Sitting by herself, and she was thinking about, just heartbroken by all the stories she had heard, and she was saying, Lord, I, I, I can't do this. Now, she's been doing it all year, but this is now a concentrated form all week. It's been Thursday nights all year. Here she is. She knows now this is going to become more serious because the relationships are getting deeper. Lord, my wife said, and my wife has amazing capacity to get things done. I mean, she could run the world. Sometimes she wants to run my life, and I don't want her to, but she could run the world. But even she was overwhelmed. She was so vulnerable being in this camp with all these girls. And she said, Lord, I can't do this. You ever said that? I can't do this. You're overwhelmed. The obligation, the responsibility, the demands, the intensity, the hopelessness. Lord, I can't do this. And she thought she was just letting out a sigh. But she heard a response. And she knew it came from God. And the response was this. You don't have to do anything. What? You don't have to do anything except love these girls. I'll do everything else. I'll take care of this. Just love these girls. When you and I think about the needs in the world, we think about the problems we have, they're overwhelming. But if Jesus is alive and he's building a kingdom, and he sent his spirit to accomplish the task, 
you and I are shown what we're supposed to do and what we can release. Loving these girls is enough. Believe me, it's enough. That's challenging enough. Just love these girls. That's your call. That's God's call on you. The Holy Spirit is the voice of God in a very contemporary way, walking with you, ready to guide you and ready to empower you. And there was a kind of release that she felt because it was too much. Because the needs are too deep. And you, and you kind of pull up one layer, there's another layer of need. And another layer of need. And the stories, it is too much. Only if God is in this. Only if God is here with us. Only if God is, is doing what we cannot do can we afford to even participate in this. Which is why many of us, unfortunately, give up and go our own way. Or why some of us, full of our own ego, say, no, I can do this. If I just try harder, if I could work 20 hours a day, I'm not, not going to take a vacation ever again because I have to do this because the whole world's counting on me. And you have to resign from that messianic role. Okay? But what is God calling you to do? What's He going to empower you to do? I mean, loving these girls is pretty overwhelming all by itself. But God has given my wife love for these women. I mean, she loves them tremendously. She can't wait to see them again this week because a number of them who live in this area are going to meet again and she wants to go. I can't believe how much she wants to go be with them. Now, if you go to another couple of verses, and I'll do this really quickly. Um, Jesus is alive, indeed. Is he alive? Do you know that? Are you convinced? Kingdom of God sets... The agenda creates the value system. The Holy Spirit prompts us as you're listening and as you're responding and as you're obeying. And if you stop listening and stop obeying, you stop hearing from God because those who listen get what they need. Those who give up, those who stop listening, whose heart hardens, go deaf. Just go deaf. They don't hear anymore. They don't, they don't get the guidance and often complain about that. But you've never taken the guidance you've been given. Take that step, you'll be given more. Take the next step, you'll be given more. Not only guidance, but power. You didn't know you had it in you. And you don't, unless God puts that in there, and He does. He's constantly pouring into you. He's doing that. So the next passage is about the disciples all together in the upper room. 12, 13, and 14. I won't read it. But they're there gathered together consistently in prayer. All right. Prayer really is foundational for this whole thing. We're gathered together. Together is is foundational. There's something about the encouragement of being together that we need. We have all of these advantages, and God is constantly pouring out these advantages on us so that we will have the strength to do what we otherwise would call impossible. Lead this new life and do it God's way and do it together. We got to connect together and together we go to God and together we listen to God and together we share what we're hearing and what we're learning. And this is intense because it's constant. I mean, there are times, and I probably admitted this before, where I think, I'm glad God's there in case I ever need him. I need him all the time. Come on, wake up, Doug. I need him all the time. I need him constantly. It's a constant narrative. But I need to be with you. I love more and more being with people who are praying around me. Especially if they're, you know, it's, we're doing it seriously and we're really open and, 
and we're acknowledging what we need and we're paying attention to what he's saying. And that's what the disciples were doing. They didn't know where this was going. They were on the brink of the cliff. And when you're on the edge of the cliff, when you're in the middle of a crisis, you pray. What else can you do? And that's what they do. And they're all the disciples. The men and the women are together. And then if you continue a little bit into this passage, this is one of the reasons we don't like Acts chapter 1. It's because there's a dark side. It has to do with Judas. It has to do with the fact that Judas, as it says, was one of us and shared in this ministry. How could that happen? You know, once upon a time, back a few weeks ago, the disciples were in the upper room and there was the Passover meal and uh, they were all there, including Judas, and Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And they didn't point at Judas saying, well, it's him. I mean, his name's Judas, we know it's him. You know what they said? They said, is it I? One by one, they said, Lord, it's not, it's not me. I, could, could it be me? And the answer is yes, it could be you. Every one of us has the capacity to let God down. Every one of us has the capacity to do something awful that we would deny today we have the capacity to do. But given the right pressure and given the fact that we have now gone off in the wrong direction, we can wander in some pretty dark places. We would like to think the line between good and evil is right here. I'm on this side and my friends, and the bad guys are over there. The truth is that line goes right like this. And so there's a sense in which getting ready for Acts chapter 2 means I've got to take some inventory here. I've got to figure out where I am. And the areas where I'm weak, do you know what the name of that sin is that, that tends, tends to grab you by the throat and turn you into somebody who's uh, potentially very destructive? Do you know the name of that? You better deal with that now. You better name it out loud. You better own it and say, this is my weakness. This is my struggle. And share it with folks who can encourage and pray for you and keep you accountable and hold you honest. Every one of us should have that kind of circle of friends. Otherwise, like Judas, you were with us. You shared in this ministry. And you're gone. You're out there somewhere. You're not part of the, you're not part of the mission. It's the saddest thing in the world because you don't want to miss this. And then the last point made at the very end of chapter 1 has to do with replacing Judas, of course, and it has to do with this apostolic ministry. Because this ministry is now going to unleash, going to explode in Acts chapter 2. And you do want to be a part of this. And apostolic means we're going to be sent out. This little group that was kind of huddling fearfully until very recently, is going to be sent out. They're going to become fearless adventurers, following Christ, led by the Holy Spirit, whose agenda is the kingdom of God, and because Christ is alive, we can throw caution to the wind and do exactly what he tells us to do. Because there is no enemy now that holds us captive. We're not held captive anymore. We're released. We've been ransomed. And so we're free. This apostolic ministry, just to cheat ahead a little bit for, for a minute or two, to look into Acts chapter 2, what happens? Well, you get Peter suddenly speaking. And not, it's not about Peter anymore, Mr. Bravado. It's Peter, the humble servant. But 
He's now got something to say. For the first time, really, in a couple of years, he's got something really powerful to say because he's giving the gospel. He's presenting the good news. And what is the good news? It's a new vision. He talks about new vision. And there are new visionaries, he says in Acts chapter 2. There are young men and there are old men. There are, there are uh, our sons and daughters, men and women. All of us are now invited to find our voice to speak this good news. And this good news is about forgiveness. And this good news is about new life, which comes into an area where there's been death and despair, whether it's teenage moms struggling with this, whether it's a bunch of guys sitting in a circle trying to figure out life, whether it's you who needs to hear the good news, and you've got nothing to offer until you're experiencing it. You can't promote something that you haven't been deeply moved by and are being transformed by. And it says, again, in chapter 2, and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, this is available to everybody. And you look at the list of people in Acts chapter 2 who come and listen. And they're coming from all over the world, from the east to the west. In fact, if you look at the list, it starts in the east and it goes to the west all the way out to Rome. All these folks, it's, it's, it's for all of you. It's for all of you. This is life itself. It's for all of us. It even includes... The Scythians, a group that's mentioned in there. And by the way, they are the barbarians among the barbarians. This is the group the other barbarians look down on. Those are the real barbarians, the Scythians. So how far down you are, you're still invited to this new experience, this new life experience that provides for you everything. And by the way, the ultimate at the end of chapter 2, which we don't have time to look at, please read chapter 2 at some point as a follow-up to 1, because this is what we're getting ready for. There's a new community. There's a new community. And everyone, it says, was in awe of what was happening, of the faith, of the intimate, close, healthy relationships, and of the fact these people were sharing their lives and even sharing their stuff with each other. You know, I sat with Victor and Catherine the other day and their little baby Joshua. And uh, uh, I had the courage to do that because Jeannie came with me. I'll follow Jeannie anywhere. She said, come on, let's go visit them. I go, absolutely, let's go do it. So we went there. This is a couple that's been through the hardest time with the hardest possible news. They almost lost their baby and then they find out he has these profound disabilities what do I have to offer them when I show up? I don't know. I, I literally don't know. I, I don't have words because I know words can be awfully cheap and awfully superficial. And this is a very serious, potentially tragic situation. That's how we look at it humanly. All I can think of it to do is, can I hold him? This little guy is so little and he's so struggling to live and he's struggling to breathe. And just, just, just hold him. What a privilege to hold him. And while I'm holding him, Jeannie is talking to them and somehow reassuring them. And somehow, even by her love, she is the presence of the living Christ there. And you can see them, and she's talking about, oh, our church is going to help, and can we bring some food? And we've been waiting for an invitation, and they said, well, we don't really have the energy to invite anybody, but anybody who wants to stop by, that would be so good. 
Not all of you at once, but it would be good. People are waiting for good news to invade some pretty dark places. Just a beautiful young couple trying to come to terms with a challenge that's unbelievable that would knock any of us out. And only if Jesus is alive, and only if we become the community of Jesus, can we share the good news with so many people who are waiting to experience that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, there's so much to do to get ready. Hurry up and wait. And we're waiting as a church right now for a new pastor, a little longer now than we had planned. But it's not the pastor. It's not the pastor, as I well know. Who is the answer? You're here. You're already here. You're already at work. And yes, you're asking us to get ready. Always getting ready for the next mission. Maybe for some of us, the first time we'll ever experience a mission. First time we'll ever take responsibility to join you in this incredible partnership. As you create momentum, as you bring life into our world and ask us to find our voice and speak about new life in Christ. God, galvanize us into that community that prays, that forgives, that leans into the hope, that is confident because of Christ and shares that confidence with people who are who are sinking, who are feeling insecure, who are highly anxious. All of us knows, we all know what that's like. We all need this good news. May we inhale it today. May we immerse ourselves in it. May we get ready for whatever's coming. As overwhelming as it might seem, you're going to lead us, you're going to provide, we're going to discover some really wonderful surprises along the way as you show up again and again. Thank you, Jesus' name. Amen.